Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Hello, I'm Virginia Heffernan, and welcome to This is Critical, where we challenge all of our assumptions about culture, like that it's hard to get off Facebook. I got off in late 2017 after I saw some people I know repeating weird disinformation about Antifa. It just felt like a dark wood where we'd all lost sight of the clear path. I deactivated my account and never looked back. So today we're talking about everyone's favorite subject, heteronormative marriage. Now, don't listen to me. I was a complete bust at my first marriage, so I have little advice to give except to say that it's all kind of an experiment and there's no tried and true path. And also, that being a single Pringle is galactically great. I did get engaged in December to someone who's been married not once but twice before. So wish us luck. Come on, no whammies, no whammies this time. Today, my guest is someone who has shown more stamina than I did in the matrimony Malay. She's Heather Havrilevsky, and she and her husband, Bill, have been together for a good long time. Now, when they hit setbacks, they don't instantly fall apart like I did. They do things you're supposed to do in those marriage labs. Talk it through, listen to each other, whatever, go for healing walks, and then reconvene and wait for hard eyes to return. Or at least... That's how I perceive her marriage. Heather is the philosopher queen of excellent, uproarious, shrewd advice on being a person. She's published a bunch of books and a long-running advice column. And her recent book, Foreverland, on the divine tedium of marriage, the advice she gives takes the form of a memoir. She shows how she chose a husband, and I'll preview that for you. She recruited him like an NBA coach. And she shows how they've learned to enjoy the ride of the divine tedium. Heather is so confoundedly good at stripping away the paint and Instagram filters of late capitalist aspirations. And she accepts the rosacea and mediocre spaghetti of marriage in order to find a more ecstatic way of being. This sort of acceptance and kind of like, well, I triedness of her wife role, has put her squarely in the ranks of the dirtbag wives. And those are those people like Olivia Coleman's character in The Lost Daughter, Edna Pontellier in The Awakening, and Rachel Cusk in her memoirs. These women cannot be bothered to live marriages, according to Pinterest boards, and they have rage and they hate making dinner. Okay, the last one might just be me. Amazingly, 
When Heather's book came out, the weird sniping New York Post tried to go global with a a headline, U.S. wife hates her husband. I mean, I get it. It's not like there's a war going on. And Heather is definitely the first spouse ever to have a flash of hatred toward her husband. But it did seem a bit excessive. And then the view piled on. I mean, the idea somehow was that Heather was supposed to put husband ego management ahead of all else. Good thing Bill, her husband, thought that was absurd. No wonder the two of them do so well in forever land. Heather, welcome to This is Critical. Hi, Virginia. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to get to talk to you. I knew this book was out. I'm obsessed with your past books, How to Be a Person in the World. Um, this one, Foreverland, got, first got my attention, I have to admit, when I saw the New York Post, the right-wing tabloid of New York City, and, um, and The View talking about it and slagging it off. Why? Why are you getting so much flack for this book? I don't remember this happening with How to Be a Person or Disaster Preparedness. I think that when when it comes to the subject of marriage, people are extremely rigid and punitive and uh, and it, it makes them feel things when a woman is talking about marriage, apparently. Well, I think also that if you had said your husband was divine and had saved you and was the greatest, or if you had said he was brutal and abusive and you left him, then those might have been allowed. But for some reason, this idea that he's flawed is a shocker. Yes. Well, we love clear-cut stories where either a marriage is blissful and it's the fantasy of happy, happily ever after, or a marriage is, um, you know, it's, it's tragically flawed and needs to be ended immediately. Yes. I myself, at the first sign of distress, just dropped my marriage. Like, I couldn't, we couldn't handle one micron of normal, you know, of flaws, it turns out. But you have so much more stamina than than I do. Um, Tell me about Foreverland and tell me about what being in a long marriage is. Well, I mean... Where you actually commit to death, do you part? I didn't know how committed I was and also how not completely committed I was until I started writing this book. It's it's interesting. I mean, and both things are true at the same time. There are ways that... It, sometimes I think of marriage as just a series of snapshots. You can take a snapshot at any given time and say, oh, that's a bad marriage. I mean, there's a way that marriage just gives you a big mistake feeling a lot of the time because, you know, because you're in it for good. I mean, you know, there's there are ways that you just you think that you're going to become a better version of yourself and stay that way because you found the right person. And I never had any doubt that I'd found I'd found the right person. I knew that I was marrying the right person. And I never really thought I'm with the wrong person necessarily. Um, But I still thought, Jesus, like it's really difficult to find the right person because then you have to stay with them you know, until you're dead. And why would anyone do that? I mean, that was what became the, the center of my book. So it's not, it's, it's, the commitment is what creates the, the ambivalence, if that makes sense. It's not that you're not committed. It's because you're committed that you're ambivalent. 
Right. I mean, no one really talks about that sense of profound ambivalence. I mean, how you can love someone or be falling in love with someone and still feel a sense of maybe like almost freezing while trying to accept the magnitude that your relationship could have on your future. I mean, so tell me a little bit about the beginning. Tell me when it all started. The beginning of our, you know, the the things that led up to getting married were the hardest part of the entire relationship because all of the anxiety of having made this choice and being locked into it were really in my face. And I think that, I mean, for me, that's valuable for people to, to it's a valuable story to share because people think, take these kinds of feelings, these sensa- ambivalent sensations very seriously. And I think sometimes when you're with the right person or when you're just, you really are about to make a great choice, uh, you can have a and a crazy reaction to it that isn't about, you know, there's not, there's not a lot of truth in there necessarily. It's just the truth of who, it's the truth of your damage and your issues and your fears and your insecurities more than it's the truth of this person is wrong for me. I know you from a distance, in an odd distance, and I see you as like a femme fatale. I don't see you as like a harried mom. But also, you know, I've known your work for a, for a long time, single. And, you know, as you say in the book, all these like vivid, like interesting women just retreat into these heterosexual pairings and just go dark for a while and a long time if they have kids, you know? So that transformation is something like we feel in our lives, but you probably also felt kind of with your friends, just like, where is everyone? And even when they're there, they're just different. Like they sing the wheels on the bus and they like just do weird things with their babies and everyone's just a bummer. Yeah, and you feel like you're losing them when you first see them in that state, but you haven't necessarily had kids yet or you're not, you don't have a partner yet. You're just like, oh God, like this is everything that I had before. I had this crazy fun circus and now I'm just wanting the same circus. I remember being at a party late at night with a bunch of married friends and they, and I looked around and I was the only one that had a beer in my hand and everyone else was like, okay, we've got to go. And just feeling like, wait a minute, you know, I used to drink enough that I didn't notice that. I mean, this is partially just a, maybe I was drinking too much story. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, um, but yeah, you know, the, and, and I would argue actually that part of going dark as a, as, a, um, as a married person and as a person and as a mother, as a parent, is you're forced to make friends with the, the parents of your kids' friends and that drops you down into this alternative universe where you are not hand selecting interesting people who you who would naturally like you. You're actually in, injected often into scenarios where everyone around you is sort of built to find you disgusting <laughs> and awful. Yes. Like my favorite read it out loud passage that like for this alone Everyone needs to buy the book. But it's an account of you as Phil Jackson. Just going to say it. It is my favorite 
thing. I mean, I want to quote it because I want the laughs. You know what I mean? Like, I just want the laughs from the listeners. But I've got to give it to you since it, since it is your writing and your style. Seeing your future husband, Bill, this way is pretty classic. I mean, can you share what you wrote about him being a franchise player, the person that teams build their entire roster around? I spent close to two decades looking for a husband. I didn't just want someone who could temporarily soothe my loneliness. I wanted someone who would banish loneliness and darkness forever. I didn't want a role player. I wanted a franchise player, someone to build my whole program around. After about two weeks of exchanging emails, I was pretty sure that Bill could support a whole franchise. He was a grown adult. He was an intellectual comedian, an athletic therapist. He had talent, he had potential. He needed a little guidance, but I trusted my coaching skills. I could build a solid program around this one. But all husbands, like all franchise players, have their flaws. They are only human. That is in fact the real tragedy of finding a permanent husband. He is a husband, yes, but he is not omnipotent. He is not a demigod. He does not have golden sunlight and magic shooting out of his fingertips. He cannot banish darkness and bend the laws of time and space. This is a recurring letdown for those of us who succeed in locating an actual adult human husband. Even with skilled coaching, Kobe had his issues. Shaq had his little flaws, which on some days, from the wrong angle, might just look like very big flaws fatal flaws even. That said, my coaching has its flaws too. I could give even the most confident player a complex. I have tremendously high expectations. I push my players too hard. Everyone says so. I believed in him though, or maybe I didn't. Maybe that was the problem, but God damn it, do we want to be champions or don't we? Um, what I love about your sort of, when you are in Phil Jackson mode and you're recruiting, you are one of the few women I know who admits that you are after looks and Bill's super handsome and that that was like really right up there. Like you wanted a picture of him in email, you know, topless, or you didn't want a dick pic, but you want, you definitely wanted to know what the whole, what his body was like and his, and I love that because, you know, that's just like, too many women with their dumb needs for a sense of humor. Come on. Yeah, I mean, when I talk about being into looks, I, a little part of me is like, yeah, I'm shallow, Virginia. <laughs> it's very sad. But part of it was that people had reached out to me and said, let's have coffee. I read your stuff and I love it. And so I was sort of like having coffee with these men that I wouldn't even dream of sleeping with in a million years. And I was like, if I'm going to have a coffee, with, have coffee with some random stranger, he better at least be hot because... I'm, all, I'm just going to be wasting my time no matter what. And I might as well be looking at a hot man while I'm wasting my time. Um, so, I, so I wrote to Bill when he wrote to me the first time. And I said, I mean, it was weird. I'd never written this before, but I was like, okay, f you know, maybe I will trade emails with you, but you better send me a picture right now and don't expect to be hot enough for me. And I was kind of saying, I don't want to make you feel bad if I just say, nope. But I might, the bar is very high for like, you've got to be mega hot if I'm going to waste my time just shooting the shit with you and I've never met you before. And then he sends me an email and I'm like, what the hell? It's my one hot fan. I can't <laughs> believe it. Right, I think you said hubba hubba back to him, which is just like too funny. I mean, so good. So we've got, 
we've got some of the divine, which is like you do a nice job. You spare us the sexual details, which you say are like, you know, categorizing or someone giving you a list of their favorite pizza toppings. If you were like, and then he touched me here, and I said, "Ooh, baby, ah," you don't. You spare us that entire <laughs> entirely. I got that from Elaine Boozler, by the way. But it's clear there's like fireworks in the beginning and you guys start with a huge head of steam going into the marriage. And that seems partly the divinity, the consecration and then the tedium. And, you know, in jokes about tedium, like some kind of, you know, everybody loves Raymond, kind of like you annoy me the way you put on hand cream, you smack when you chew or whatever. But you're, you know, fundamentally at the end of the each episode, we're, you know, magically bonded. Yours gets a little more tragic than that. And not just at the end where it really turns dark. But you there are some pretty brutal arguments. Tell us about that when things get really bad. So the first time I ever the first time I ever left the house and left the baby with Bill. It was hard to do. I had been just, the baby was attached to my body for, I don't know, three weeks or something. And then I finally said, okay, I'm going to get out of the house on my own. I'm going to go have a drink with a girlfriend and I'm going to come back. And so when I walked in the door, Bill was holding the baby in one, on his forearm, not even holding the baby with two hands. And the baby's legs and arms were dangling and her face was down into his palm somehow. I mean, I didn't really understand the grip he was using. And his step, my stepson was there next to him. And he was stirring a pot of boiling water that he was about to put some macaroni in. And so I walked in and I just, all I could see was a baby falling into a pot of boiling water, you know? And I was like, what am I looking at? Like, how is this? And they were laughing and joking with each other while he's doing these things. And I'm like, what is, what am I seeing here? And he says, just calm down. And I just had this, I mean, sometimes you have such a physical reaction of rage that you're just paralyzed and you can't even speak. And that's where I was. And he kept saying, relax, relax. You know, he kept talking at me like, what's wrong with this toaster? Slap, slap, you know, like as if I was, was just supposed to function differently. And I was like, we need to, I, you know, I didn't want to scream at him in front of Zeke. Not that Zeke didn't eventually see me screaming, but um, but I said, we need to talk about this. I can't wait to hear how that particular conversation went. Those vulnerable moments can be really hard. We'll get into that a bit more after the break. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well... 
Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. We're back with Heather Haverlewski, the author of Foreverland, about her awesomely ambiguous marriage. Okay, Heather, you got to tell me about this talk you had to have with Bill. And you said you, you said you had murder in your voice. And I do feel like, I know that that's a little, that's an exaggeration, but I really think that the hatred is important so that it's not just petty irritations, but they're just flashes of supreme rage. Well, I think part of it is just feeling like, oh, you know, for me, it was like, this is my childhood. It's feeling like discounted and undermined in the moment. And being told that my emotional reaction is irrational and that I need to stop it. Just stop. Which is some, you know, that's a refrain of my childhood. Like, just turn that off or I'm going to get really angry at you. So it's really hard. At the worst moments in a marriage, you, that's what's recreated. is like the worst part of your, I think for some people, the worst part of your childhood. And the most helpless, you know, the most helpless moments in your life. So... In that state, sometimes in that state, uh, I just lose my shit. But other time, at this particular time, I, I just thought, my God, my whole life could go this way. And so I was like, we have to talk. We went back to the bedroom and I explained to him, when you hold that baby over, a, you know, that baby has been in my body for almost a year. And now you're holding my liver over a boiling pot of water. It doesn't feel just like I'm worried. It's not a thought. It's a feeling. It's a sensation. Like, I'm in danger is what I'm seeing. That I'm in danger. You're endangering a part of me that you don't even understand. You don't, you don't clearly don't experience this as your liver. You don't know what, how it feels for me. And he was like, and I, and I went into detail about, I've never felt so vulnerable in my entire life as I do with this baby. It's not just that the baby is vulnerable and I'm trying to do a good job. It's that I feel like a baby, helpless and a mess and needy and just fragile. And it's in a new way, you know, a completely new way that I've never experienced before. That, okay, beautifully described. I mean, that lizard brain feeling that you, that, a husband or, uh, yeah, a husband is going to like hurt your baby or even like on some totally irrational side, like kill your baby, burn your baby. Um, coupled with just a sense of, of visceral rage does seem to get at something that you say in the book, which is like essentially getting married does kill off a part of you. Cause you say that there's an existential threat to you with your, you call it ambition, but it feels like your life force or something. It's under, it's going to be different, at least. It, exactly. And in some ways, it, that's relaxing. There's this, oh God, it's kind of nice to lose my ambition for a minute. And, and, and in other ways, I found my ambition around that time. But there's this, the, the recurring sense of, loss of identity is real also, where you feel like something this big that changes how I feel overnight about myself 
and changes my priorities overnight has a has a potential to erase everything that I've built. And the world around me is sending me the message that that is the only way to proceed, that I must erase it. And if I don't, there's something a little messed up about me. Um, and if I do cling to the things that make me feel like my old self, and I think this happens until a woman is dead and gone. The thing, even after your kids move out of the house, I have a sense that, you know, I mean, my kids are teenagers now, but even now, the things that I love and keep to myself and the times that I have friendships that are mine and mine alone, other people treat that like it's, I'm doing something wildly aberrant. Yes. And now we can get to the criticism because that's how you and I connected. But especially Whoopi Goldberg saying that, if I remember right, you know, you had said that you're at various points, you had said that Bill was like just a snoring heap of meat or some extremely critical things. But also that obviously you're in your head the whole time about it. So it's not as though, you know, this is this is stuck to Bill forever or that anyone else would see him this way. But none other than Whoopi, Whoopi Goldberg said, you know, you can't say this. Something's can't say this about your man because then he goes to the barbecue and he gets ribbed about this. And I think I was thinking, I think there might be a question about the literacy level of anyone who thinks that husband ego management is part of the right, the writer's task. I mean, Ego management is already a bizarre play and it, it, Bill doesn't need it, you know? No, he doesn't. And, and that's, and also he's the hero of the book. So why did you get so much flack for this for, in these places, in the post? Why do you think? I think that, you know, I loved what you said about ego management. I do think that there's a huge chunk of the population actually believes that women's primary, a woman's primary job is to keep a man feeling safe and comfortable and good about himself. And that if a woman is to erode someone's confidence, erode a man's confidence, that's like the, the deepest level of evil in the universe to some people. And I think it's probably, I would say that it's related to um, the fact that women still are the primary caretakers of children and men are often distant, ideal, easily idealized, distant forces that drop in and seem heroic and then leave again. Because if, you're, if your primary intimate relationship as a child is with a flawed real person, that's threatening. I just think there's a knee-jerk way that our culture is allergic to women and really just dislikes women. We're kind of trained. Yeah, no, we're, trained to we're trained to roll our eyes at women from the day we're born until the day we die. And so it's the easiest thing in the world to do to roll your eyes at some woman who's doing it wrong. It's also really hard as a woman not to constantly look at women who do things that you wouldn't dare to do and say, she's doing it wrong. That's the only reason I'm not doing that because that's wrong, you know? And bold women are always doing it wrong. Aggressive women, uh, you know, opinionated women, bossy women, but also 
women who want attention, which is, according to our media, pretty much all women are attention-seeking. The second they get attention, that's proof that they all they want is attention. The second they look good, that's proof that all they want is to look great and have people want them. You know, all of these projections are involved. I really can't wait to get back to this conversation with Heather Haverlevsky. She's got some interesting thoughts on the interiority of women and men. More after the break. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Yeah, the charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. We're back with Heather Havrilevsky, the author of Foreverland on the Divine Tedium of Marriage. I read somewhere recently that there's an exercise that, well, actually the late David Graeber used to give his students where men are asked to write stories from the perspective of women and and women are supposed to write from the perspective of men. And that's it. That's the only assignment. And the women take off. They just start scribbling and writing because, I mean, we've all read John Updike. Everybody knows uh, like a rough idea of the interiority of men because we hear about it all the time. So off they go. And the men either refuse to do it or like refuse absolutely to do it or write one sentence that's basically like she liked the way her breasts looked in the mirror, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and, um, and like they just, there's no idea of a whole interiority so much that when you express interiority in this book, it is just about name calling Bill. And I played this game with Richard, I guess my fiance, and he was driving along. We were talking about exactly this topic. And I said, just try to imagine what I'm thinking as we drive along. And this is what he said. You're thinking, I hope nobody, no men look at me in, from other cars and ogle me. <laughs> oh my God. Weird. I mean, have you ever, like, I was just like, that is the farthest farthest exactly geometrically geographically geopolitically farthest thing from anything i've ever thought in a car can people even see into cars and like ogle me from here up and i'm 52 just no way and so then i was like is that just what you think like women are just cowering in response to men or excited in response to men no all he could imagine all he could imagine was himself 
right? He's just, you said, imagine me. And all he could imagine was was himself, which is exactly why when you get a man who is not very evolved and open-minded and really loves women and thinks about how they think and reads their fucking books to review a book about that written by a woman, a woman's memoir, what you get is a bunch of talk about how uh, the man in this picture feels because all he can think about while he's reading the book is about how this woman's husband feels and the men in the picture feel. To be fair, when I asked him about me, um, like specifically, he thought the first one was just about a generic woman and he just couldn't get there. When I asked him about me, he got it really right. He said, I was dwelling on whether I could use a passage from this particular philosopher, Richard Rorty, without crediting him. He thought that that's what I was thinking of if I paraphrased it enough. Um, And he was exactly right. But I mean, it was a huge relief that he could get it right when it was me. But I'm, I think listeners and you, you with Bill should try this assignment because it is crazily revealing. It's it's kind of scares me to think of trying it because I don't... I mean, my husband has been listening to me talk about the things that I think about, like nonstop for way too long. And poor man. But, but I do... It'll be interesting to see if he can do it. But, you know, I was going to say that part of the reason that women... Uh, have a better sense of women, of men's interior life is not just books. It's the fact that when you grow up in a sexist world, you have to, the people, you know, it's the goes to that new psychology of women kind of thing where, uh, you know, subordinates know more about their, you know, bosses than they know, than bosses know about subordinates. And you see that everywhere you go with, you know, women understand how men think much more generally than men even consider. Let's not even use the word understand. Try on for size how a woman might be thinking. Yes, yes. Like not, you know, yes. The whole like, is he coming home in a bad mood and I've got to get stuff together for that. I do feel like that is pretty absent in your marriage. I want to get to a moment in your marriage that, I don't know, could be viewed as a, a crisis by other married couples or at the very least something to be concerned about. Tell me about that. Sure. And I'm not going to spoil the end of that chapter because it's one of my favorite chapters. But I basically sold this book based on three chapters, I think. And immediately after selling the book, after signing, you know, I'm going to write this book about my marriage. I go out to dinner and this sort of acquaintance of mine who had invited me this author kicks me under the table at the end of, I mean, kicks is a weird word, but he, you know, he rested his foot on my foot under the table at the end of dinner. And I was like, what that, you know, why doesn't he know my foot's there? I pull my foot away. The foot comes back and I'm like, Oh my God, you know, jerking my foot away even more. And then the foot comes back and rests on my ankle. So I'm the, the message is clear. And I look at him and he's leaning way back in his chair, uh, seemingly to reach me. And so I'm like, wow, this married man with kids is going to risk, who has, you know, he's, he's got a good career. He's going to risk all these things just to let me know that he's attracted to me at the very least. But that's fathoming, that's sounding the depths of his experience. By the way, I do love that our culture has something called footsie. 
Like, what is the footsie? It's just like, who could explain it to an anthropologist? But like, I get why men play footsie. What I want listeners to understand and me to understand more is why women, married women, and what that feels like to cross the Rubicon and decide I'm going all in on the footsie. Well, I mean, you know, I went home and I told Bill about it and I said, uh, ha ha, this guy wants me. Yay. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. And, you know, we made out, of course, for like, I'm so hot. You're so hot. Yay. Someone, you know, we, because, you know, it's like you've been, I had been, you know, shuffling around the house in dirty socks and soft pants for 15 years. And suddenly someone was attracted to me and it just was not, um, that's not, that was not a typical situation for me to be in. I'd never been in that situation since I got married, basically, that someone had openly made a pass. And so I was thrilled and I just thought, ha ha, that's great. Now, like my ego gets a little gold star and I can move on. And then the next day I was like, what does he look like? Anyway, Bill left town for a trip. I'm like, hmm, what does he, what did, I can't picture his face. What's it, what does his face look like? And I pull up this, I pull up some pictures. I'm like, oh, he looks much better than I remember. And then I pull up this clip of him talking about um, his work and defending it really well and kind of arrogantly. And what the sort of sweet boy that I sort of knew was suddenly replaced by this sort of, uh, I'm, I know things, you know? And I just kept watching this clip and feeling like, what does this, ooh, he, this is, what the hell? You know, like, this guy is incredibly hot. And what, what does he, I wonder if I could get him to tell me what he likes so much about me, at least, you know? And I started to picture making him confessing to me that I'm incredible, and then us making out in a hotel. And suddenly, Bill calls me, you know, a day later, and I'm like, oh, I've been thinking about that author a lot, you know? And he's like, oh, so you do want to sleep with him? And I was like, no, I just, I'm just thinking about it. It's just in my brain. He's like, do you not fantasize? And I'm like, no, I always thought that was like cheating. So anyway, we talk about it and we sort of have this kind of exciting, good conversation about it where he's fine with it. And I'm like, okay, then I'll just keep picturing it. (laughs) You were really out there living your best imaginary life. I like that. It's exactly the reaction I would have expected from someone finding out their partner's fantasizing about someone else. But, you know, then again, you're a pretty singular person. I mean... I was sort of, there was a period of time where I was sort of bold enough to kind of ask for permission. Like, this guy just thinks I'm so amazing. So the next time I see him, I just feel like I should be able to make out with him and just feel hot. And, you know, I'll come home and we'll have sex and it'll be, you know. Meanwhile, our sex life was better than ever. I mean, it was just, it was completely uh, enhanced by this feeling you know, this sudden, you know, it injected all this like life and vibrancy into my experience of myself and of Bill. And it, you know, it's sort of weird. I mean, I started ordering lingerie and it was crazy. I mean, I think that it it was very well-timed. I was definitely hormonal. I, you know, I'll spare you the, I'll spare you all the details, but I was like, you know, 50 year old women at once, now that I've talked to some people about it, it's an age where you can get a real surge of attraction and almost, I mean, to me, I, f- I kept saying to Bill, I feel like a, like a t- 
teenage boy. <laughs> right, I guess that's how it goes. Yeah, just, wh- oh, I get it. Oh, you know, I understand why people cheat suddenly. Like, for the first time in my life, I know the appeal of cheating just by putting it into my brain. And I feel like, oh, I don't get to cheat. You know, just because I have a good marriage, I can't. Why can't I have that experience? It seems delicious. I mean, why can't we all have that experience? Indeed. I just love this. I love this. Heather, thank you so much for being here. It was a real pleasure speaking with you. I hope we're able to do this again sometime. Thank you so much for having me, Virginia. It was so nice talking to you. That's it for this week's episode of This is Critical. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts. It helps other people to learn about our show, as do you cult listeners talking about it on Twitter. Shout out to you. For more information and to keep tabs on us, follow me on Twitter at page 88 and at This Critical Pod. If you've got a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Corinne Wallace produced this episode. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and stay critical. Stitcher. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... The charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh, Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. (laughs) No, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed.